Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Jay Rosenblatt, the director of When We Were Bullies, one of the five short films nominated for an Oscar in the category of Best Documentary Short. When We Were Bullies had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival and has gone on to screen at dozens of festivals around the world. Shorts.tv has announced that When We Were Bullies will be screening with the other Oscar-nominated shorts in theaters nationwide starting February 25th. So look for that in your local market, or you can visit shorts.tv slash the Oscar shorts for more information. Originally from New York, Jay is a San Francisco-based filmmaker who has been working as an independent filmmaker since 1980 and has completed over 30 films. His films have received over 100 awards and have screened throughout the world. Eight of his films have been shown at the Sundance Film Festival. Jay is a recipient of a Guggenheim, USA Artist, and a Rockefeller Fellowship. He is currently the program director of the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. And now, my conversation with Jay Rosenblatt, the director of When We Were Bullies. Jay Rosenblatt, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here. You've been Oscar nominated. It's a wonderful film and just congratulations. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's quite an honor. Well-deserved. Can you give us a brief logline of the film? I'm going to actually tell you the logline that Sundance used because I thought it was succinct and really got to the point. This is what they said. A mind-boggling coincidence leads the filmmaker to track down his fifth grade class and fifth grade teacher to examine their memory of and complicity in a bullying incident 50 years ago. Great. Thank you. And thank you, Sundance. (laughs) (laughs) The film begins after a quick scene of you climbing over a fence at your old elementary school, which is PS 194 in New York. And we hear you in voiceover narration saying, let's start this story in the middle, which is a really great line. We then go back to the year 1992 and your personal experimental film, The Smell of Burning Ants. And the spark for that film came from a scene in a 1960s educational film in which we see one boy bullying another boy and a third boy who throws a very quick punch. And you say in voiceover, when I saw this collaborator, I saw myself and a memory jolted me that I hadn't thought about since fifth grade. For me, the memory was vague. All I know is that it happened and that I participated. So fast forward to present day and your current film, When We Were Bullies. When exactly did you decide to make this film and why? Well, what happened is, and this is all in the film itself, in the first like maybe eight minutes we learned this, but when I was making The Smell of Burning Ants, the film that was triggered by that found footage shot, I was looking for a voiceover actor because I didn't want to use my own voice. I used to teach filmmaking for many years. And one of my students showed a film and I really liked the voice of the person in it. And I asked if I could get the contact info. And he said, sure. So I called this guy up. He lived in Berkeley and we made an appointment to get together. I brought in my three page voiceover script and he is looking it over. And then he gets to this line about New York street games. We used to play slap ball, stick ball, punch ball, all these like aggressive sounding ball games. And he said, are you from New York? Because he knew from those names of those games. And I said, yeah. And he goes, where? I said, Brooklyn. And he said, oh yeah, where in Brooklyn? I said, Sheepshead Bay. And he said, me too. 
And we knew we were the same age. And then he said, what elementary school did you go to? And I said, PS 194. And he said, me too. And then he said, who did you have for fifth grade? And I said, turn the page. The next page, at the top of the page, it said, in fifth grade. Then we're both like shaking at this point. And it turns out that he was in my class. He was part of this episode that got triggered by that image of the third boy throwing that punch. And he starts telling me more information about that incident that I had completely blocked out or didn't remember at all. He was in my class and he was part of the incident and he could have written the words he was reading. All of this is in the new film, but this was a story that I found so mind boggling, like beyond lottery odds that 3000 miles away, 25 or 30 years later, I'm with the person <laughs> that ends up being the narrator of this film. And we didn't even know each other in all that time in between. At festivals that would come up sometimes and I tell that story and people would just love that story. So a few years ago, I was telling a friend of mine, she sadly passed away. Her name was Dina Sorello. We used to teach together. She's a Bay Area filmmaker. She taught at City College for many years. And I was telling her that story and she couldn't believe it. And she said, you should make a film about that. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting idea. It's been a great story. I wonder how it would be as a film. So the wheels started turning and that's how I started getting involved in this new film. The new idea was to track down my fifth grade class and to make it a film not only about bullying, complicity, but also about memory, about getting older, about mortality. So all of that grew out of that story, but in telling it to this specific person, because she did say you should make a film about that. Well, she was on to something, and so were you. <laughs> now we're back in your old elementary schoolyard, and it's you and Richard, the Richard you alluded to, who narrated your earlier film and was your classmate at PS 194. You're in the schoolyard. You've climbed over the fence. You are in the exact same location where this bullying incident took place. And I did want to ask you, what was it like for you to be back there in that same spot, reliving through your and Richard's recollections what happened? I actually went there once before, a few months before I was visiting my mom. She still lives in New York. This film was already percolating. So I went back to Brooklyn to that place. It was winter. There's snow all over. In the film, if you look closely, it's in another shot where I'm walking through. So that was my first experience being back at that school. And it, it was really strange. I asked if I could go inside the school. It was during a school day. They were reluctant, but I tried to explain. I went here 50 years ago. Can I just see the inside? I want to see the auditorium. And I looked in and it was such a bizarre feeling because I had remembered it as this big auditorium where we'd all meet and it was tiny. It was so small. It was bigger than a classroom, but it was not that big. And it was just an amazing feeling to be in that hallway and inside the school. The outside of the school was also haunting because I knew that the incident took place there. So as the film was progressing, and this is also in the film, I got invited to this reunion, a 50-year reunion of PS 194, which was so bizarre. One of many coincidences in this film. And I thought, oh, this is not something I would normally do because I'm not even on social media. I, I don't really have that kind of interest. But I thought for the film, I got to go to this because some of my fifth grade classmates might be there. I talked to Richard. I'd already interviewed Richard for the film. 
he, he also got the invitation. I said, should we go together? And he said, sure, sounds like fun. So on the trip to the reunion, we went back to PS194. And that's when we went on a Saturday and I had no idea that the gates would be locked. And I felt like I needed to, we both needed to be there in that space, look at that ground where it happened. So we decided we had to climb over the gate. <laughs> it was harder than I thought, but we did it. That leads us to that scene where we're looking at the ground and Richard points to the exact spot that he remembers it happened. And kudos to you for not ripping your pants. And it's clear if people will see this in the film that Richard kneels down before that very spot and really it does definitely bring him back to those moments. Before we go any further, I, I do want to talk about the animation that's used in the film, which is used prominently in this schoolyard scene and is used throughout. You know, animation is tricky. Do it right. And it can really, I think, enhance a story, bring it to life and add its own creative energy. But do it wrong and it can stand out like a sore thumb. I think you really nailed it. It works beautifully in the film. Can you describe the particular technique that you used and how you came up with it and the work you did with your animator, Jeremy Rourke? I'm glad you're pointing that out. I think it's integral to this film. And I think it's one of the reasons the, the film works so well. I have never worked with an animator before for the very reason you just described, because first of all, I'm very picky about animation. I'm very picky about everything in my films. But in general, I agree with you 100%. So many films use animation poorly, and it actually is, is a weakness of the film rather than a strength. And then occasionally, and I really feel this, occasionally it's used brilliantly. Jeremy's extremely talented, creative filmmaker in his own right. He makes short, beautiful pieces that he composes songs for and plays them live at different places around the country. I had known him for years because he used to teach my daughter in her after-school program in grade school. And then he taught her guitar lessons. So I knew him, but I didn't know he made animation. And then we were talking once after one of her guitar lessons. He said, yeah, I make these little films. And I said, well, I'd love to see them. And we traded films and I watched them. And I thought, wow, this is guy is so talented, so talented. And, you know, just put it in the back of my mind. And what made you think that Jeremy could be right for this particular project? When this film came about, I realized that I'm not a big fan of talking heads. Also, this was going back to an incident 50 years ago, and I needed to figure out a visual palette. Besides some interviews and besides using archival and found footage, what other elements? And I thought, I, I think I should use animation. And I thought, I'm going to try asking Jeremy if he'd be interested. He was. He does different styles. And he gave me different samples of certain things and certain scenes. And then kind of a light bulb went off. And I said, you know what, Jeremy? I think we should try to stick to the only evidence I have of this class, which is our class photo. And I think what we should do is have that as a limit and think of every possible permutation with the those small images. Luckily, that particular class photo, they're all headshots of the students. Every other class photo I have is a group photo. For some reason, this one was separate. It was almost like, again, the universe was helping me out with this. I don't know why they did it that way that one year, because the fourth and sixth grade photos are group photos, which would have been much harder to work with. But these are clearly headshots of each of us. And we just brainstormed all these different ways to use those photos. Jeremy came up with a lot of the techniques and what you see, he just came up with. Some of them were things I suggested. We'd use them in different places, then move them around. 
it really fit my aesthetic. I have a collage aesthetic and to use old photos like that felt very organic to the way I work and to the, the look of my films. So it, it just was the right fit. And can you tell us about the specific technique that Jeremy used? That's one of the reasons the film took four years, because to get to your question about the technique, it's analog. It's not a computer animation. It's cutout animation, frame by frame shooting, very meticulous and time consuming. And Jeremy, he goes into a zone when he's working on it. And we communicate every few weeks. He'd give me some new stuff. I'd suggest this, come back a few weeks later. And we went back and forth in this collaboration. I, I would say the best collaboration I've ever had with another artist. I couldn't be happier with the way it turned out. And he deserves so much credit for the success of the film. It turned out brilliantly, and the film gods must have been shining on you to have that class photo be just the individual headshots, because I've never seen that before. As you were saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, all my elementary school class photos were these group shots. And in the film itself, that was the only grade I didn't have my photo for. But another classmate who saw an article in the 90s about my filmmaking, somehow that got to her and she said, I have that photo. And that was another kismet type experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So we do see you and Richard attending the rather interesting uh, 50th reunion of your fifth grade class. And then following this scene, there's a sequence where you do call pretty much everyone from that class to ask them what they recall about the bullying incident. And what you find is that there's a, a spectrum of what people remember, everything from people who remember it clearly to those who remember nothing. And I wanted to ask you, what is your takeaway after making this film about how memory is such a variable and elusive thing? For some people, for instance, in relation to this incident, they remember it clearly and they feel guilty. Other people, that's not the issue at all. So what's your takeaway about memory and how we live with memory in our present day lives? Yeah, it's uh, a good question. One of my takeaways, at least for myself, was I don't think I would have remembered any of this if we hadn't been caught. I think being caught, I was so ashamed. I felt such shame because our teacher called us animals. That I remembered. I didn't remember it myself, but Richard said, she called us animals. And when he said that, I felt it in my body. And I really think that I felt so bad about having participated. Again, I'm not even sure what I did. I know I was there, but I felt so guilty that it was in there. It was in, in me. There's so many things like this kind of incident that happened throughout childhood that I don't think I would have retained. Now, for other people, I think it may have been the degree to which they were involved. Richard claims that the whole class was involved on some level. A couple people talked about two like concentric circles, like the girls being on the outside watching it. I think my sense is that there was a lot of taunting and chanting, and that was the real collective response to being part of it. Like you said, there were some people that had no memory of it, but everyone remembered the person we bullied. I, I will say that. I don't think there was one person I interviewed that hadn't remembered him because he stood out. One thing that strikes me is that there are bullying incidents like in that old found footage from the 60s or maybe one boy bullying another with a quote unquote collaborator there as well. And then there are mob incidents. And at least the way Richard describes this is kind of a mob incident. So 
perhaps that makes it a little more memorable as well. Perhaps. Richard has a really good memory. Even when we re-met 25, 30 years later, he mentioned a few things that kind of confirmed that he has a good memory. He remembered being in my apartment house, in my apartment, and he remembered this kind of photo cell, solar cell, little car that I had. When he said that, I remembered, yeah, I had that thing. That was a gift that I had gotten, a toy. He remembered us playing with it. So that kind of confirmed, like, this guy has a much better memory than me. Because of some traumatic things that happened to me at that age, I blocked out so much. So I, I relied on Richard's memory to fill in some details. And I think he got most of it, but he even has questioned it since whether he really remembered that correctly. And that was part of the impetus with going to each classmate now is just to see how much we could corroborate and just piece it together. What, what did really happen? But yeah, memory, it's not always reliable. Everyone holds on to certain things for reasons that are unknown, really. Let's talk about Mrs. Bromberg, your teacher at the time. Amazingly, and here's another one of these coincidences, she's still around. You're able to find her through a classmate and eventually interview her. There's so much to talk about here. But the main bit of information that we learned from your interview is that she doesn't remember the incident at all. It simply didn't stick with her. And she makes the point that you remember because it happened to you. As somebody who makes films that strive to be both personal and universal, I'm curious how you respond to what she said. If it's the things that happen to us that affect us the most, how as an artist do you get to that next universal step. What's the secret to being able with a personal film to reach others deeply? Uh, that's a great question. I'll say a couple things. Mrs. Bromberg does not remember the incident at all. She doesn't even remember anyone in the class when she's looking at the photo. But in talking to her, she ends up revealing a personal bullying episode that happened to her daughter. So right there, you get the sense that even though this was a personal thing that happened to me, she brought her own personal into it and talked about it. So in a sense, it was becoming universal in our interview. Now, another thing is I try to leave space in many of my films for the viewer to have moments of self-reflection. And I've been amazed by how many people who have seen the film and take the time to write to me, they end up sharing a story with me. That's another example of, yes, it's hitting some sort of button that's universal. And lastly, I think my decision to not name or ever see the person that was bullied, I think actually that has allowed people to plug in their own experience more. I think if he were seen and named, it would become much more personal and insular. And I don't think it would open up as much as the film does open up to the universal. Yeah, and I think bullying is a universal issue. Certainly when I watched your film, it brought me back to elementary school, brought me back to fourth grade and fifth grade. And I think it's Mrs. Blomberg who talks about shunning. Is she the one that brings up shunning? No, that's one of my, actually, that's uh, one of my classmates who became a superintendent of schools on Long Island. And she talks all about shunning, that kind of dynamic that happens with kids. Oh, I think it happens with adults too. What does she say? She says something like, if you have contact with the person that's being shunned, you get shunned too. It's really a, a cruel dynamic that happens in groups. It's almost like a virus. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it, it did bring me back to an incident where I was shunned at that age. So <laughs> the film 
truly does hit home. The interview with Mrs. Bromberg, where she reveals the information about her daughter, it's kind of a shocking moment and it's tragic. And yet she's pretty matter of fact about it and very under control. But I was just curious about you sitting there taking in this information and what you were thinking. I could tell that it was traumatic for her, but that she was kind of keeping it together for the interview. I also, my sense is, I might as well just say, there's a lot of spoiler alerts that we've already got. Hopefully people have watched the film before this interview, yes. and if not, they can stop now and they can watch it and then come back to it. Well, Mrs. Bromberg reveals, and this is in her own words, that her daughter committed suicide, she thinks. And the way she says it, I think, really revealed that it wasn't this clear-cut suicide. It's more like she believes that the way her daughter lived her life, which is that she had severe respiratory problems and she was extremely obese and did not do anything about that. She felt it was, in a sense, a suicide, like a smoker that just can't stop smoking and like a slow suicide, let's put it that way. This is how she felt about it. That is how she's holding her daughter dying. And she made some connection to the bullying that her daughter went through as being part of that whole history. Is that the cause of the suicide? I don't know. I just thought when she used the word suicide, it was eye-opening. And yeah, it just, it added a certain gravitas to her interview for sure. But I think she came to terms with it on some level because you're right, she doesn't like, she doesn't break down and cry. But I could tell, I could see her holding back. When I say something like, I'm really sorry to hear that, she goes, well, you know, like almost brushing it aside because she doesn't want to feel anything. Yeah, I think it's all there in the interview. This question's maybe a little out there, but in these last few days and weeks, I've been thinking a lot about bullies writ large. And as we're on the verge of this probable invasion by Russia of Ukraine, I just can't help think about it as a bully because here they're this much more powerful country that borders a much weaker country militarily, and they are simply going to invade the country because they can. And it gets back to this point that you raise in the movie about are we hardwired to pick up up on vulnerability. Do you think that we are? I do think we are. But I also think we have the capability of transcending that and sticking up for people. We don't always have the courage in the moment, but I think our better natures or our higher selves can do that. We're not always in that place. And unfortunately, there's a lot of horrible people out there giving in to their lower selves, you know? And we just had four years of having a bully in chief here. Same mentality, same mentality. I was also going to bring up Trump because supposedly my mom's cousin, my mom grew up in New York in the Bronx, and her cousin says that she was Trump's kindergarten teacher. I've never been able to verify that independently, and she's passed away since, but she said he was exactly the same in kindergarten as he would later would, become. He was the class bully and she couldn't stand the kid. I would not be surprised at all. And for your information, this whole film was made during the Trump era, basically from 2016 to 2020. So how could that not, even if I didn't want to bring it in, how could that not inflect the whole milieu I was working under? I'm sure you felt this too. I felt like I was being bullied daily. Every time I read anything in the newspaper, I felt like he was bullying me and the whole country. It was never going to be explicit in the film, but it, it's there. 
Let's talk about the ending. You had mentioned your decision not to include Dick, who's the person who was bullied in this incident, his picture in the film or share his identity. You also say that that's the ending that you expected the film to have. It's certainly one that we were maybe expecting as well. So instead of including an interview with Dick, presuming you could get one, you decide to write him a letter instead. And in that letter, you say, please know the film is not really about you but about us. And then you do something pretty extraordinary. I think you connect your pain about losing your younger brother when you were in the fourth grade to Dick's pain. What made you realize that you two were connected in some way? And did the making of this film help you come to grips with your memories of the pain you were going through at that time? Yes, Ken, absolutely. Absolutely. What happened with the making of this film is, and I did not expect this, this was not planned. I was never planning to bring my brother's death into the film. But what happened is when I was interviewing a lot of my classmates, it came up. Sometimes I would say any other memories about Dick. I I didn't call him Dick. I call him Richard. And they would say things and I say, any memories about me? And several people said, well, of course, I remember what happened to you. And I go, what? And they say, your brother's death. And I was kind of shocked by that because at that age, at that time, I thought I was hiding that. I mean, they all knew, but I was so traumatized and I had such survivor guilt that I just wanted to hide it happening. And I just clammed up, never talked about it to anyone for 10 years after it happened. So to hear all these former fifth grade classmates mentioning it in a very caring way really hit me. It it did. And it also made me realize that's what I was going through when this incident happened with Dick. It had been probably a few months at the most a year after my brother's death. I was still in that state. And I realized that how could that have not affected how I participated and how I held the whole event? The connection just seemed to be there. And there was a certain vulnerability that I felt connected to Dick in that way. And that added to my feeling of guilt for what we did to him, as well as for my survivor guilt, if that makes sense. So yeah, there was a definite connection there. And and it wasn't in the film at first at all. (laughs) And then I brought it in gently and gingerly. And then I realized I had to get into it a little more. And I I felt like, you know, in a way, somebody gave me some feedback and felt like the film needed to be even more personal for me. And I think that was really good advice. We do see footage of you and your brother. Yes. Again, not planned. Because I've already made a film, to be honest, about uh, a death and, and about my brother's death and about grief. And it's called Phantom Limb. And I never thought I would deal with it again. But it seemed right for this film because it was from the same time period. I want to go back to The Smell of Burning Ants, your earlier film from the 90s for a moment. And in that film, presumably speaking about yourself or a character who resembles you, quote, he's not a bully He is not a victim. He's an observer. And also he's a collaborator. He lives in fear. He tries to keep secret the betrayal he commits. It seems that with this film, your current film, maybe the secret of any betrayal has been revealed. Symbolically, it's interesting for me that the the last shot of the film is an animated shot in which all the photos of your classmates sort of bunch together in a tight knit clump. And then they're gathered up into a ball like a piece of trash and roll off the film frame. Now that this incident has been quote unquote revealed, does this film close a long more than 50 year chapter for you? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's hard to say for sure. (laughs) 
it definitely has been a healing experience for me and for many people that see the film. And that's one of my motivators for making a lot of my work. So there is a little bit of closure on that. I'm not 100% sure I'm done with this. It's possible that I'll use the name Dick just for the sense of expediency. It's possible he'll get wind of this film and contact me again. I don't know if that will be the case. So it could go on in some ways. I will say that there is one thing that you said that I want to correct. That is the last image we see before the credits, but there is an image at the very end, right after the credits. And that is the cutout of Dick's silhouette alone in the schoolyard and leaving the frame. So I just want to make a note of that because in a sense, I wanted to give him, and this is symbolically the last word or the last image, the last thought. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think it speaks to the fact that you as an artist are so careful and sensitive to what's inside the frame. And I would add what's outside as well. So I really want to congratulate you and thank you for this film, which brought up a lot for me and I'm sure for many, many other people. It's beautifully made, it's heartfelt, and it's just a wonderful experience. So congratulations, Jay, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Ken. It was really enjoyable. I loved your questions. Appreciate it.